Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we look into why contaminated drinking water is becoming such a problem in a growing number of U.S. communities. What can be done about it? And are there lessons there for Canada? On the eve of the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, we ask how can natural resources and resource extraction projects led by Indigenous communities and reconciliation complement each other? We speak to Canada's UN Ambassador Bob Ray about Russia's plans to formally and illegally annex more Ukrainian territory on Friday following illegitimate referendums in four regions and how the world should respond. After a tough six-year stretch, Alberta is once again attracting more people than it's losing, especially from Ontario. We find out what's leading them to head west. But we begin in southwest Florida where the true scale of the devastation caused by Hurricane Ian is becoming clearer. We hear from those who lived through the storm and those tasked with the recovery. We're going to start off right away in Florida. We're going to start off right away where Hurricane Ian is. It's moving north tonight towards South Carolina and regaining strength ahead of another landfall predicted for early tomorrow. This is U.S. National Hurricane Center Specialist Richard Pass. The speed is roughly um, the same. It's moving about 10 miles per hour. There is a danger of flash flooding from the rains, and there will be storm surge flooding along the coast. In southwest Florida today, they are still rescuing people trapped in their homes by surging floodwaters, assessing the devastation, and trying to figure out what next. Ian was one of the most powerful storms to ever hit the continental U.S. when it roared into southwestern Florida around Fort Myers yesterday with 250 kilometer an hour winds. But really, the issue was the five meter storm surges that knocked out knocked out power to 2.5 million people. Here's Governor Ron DeSantis. We've never seen a a flood event like this. We've never seen storm surge of this magnitude. And it hit an area uh, where there's a lot of people in a lot of those low-lying areas. And it's going to end up doing extensive damage uh, to a lot of people's homes. Uh, So there's going to be a lot of work to do. The hardest hit area, again, is in and around Fort Myers on the Gulf Coast side, south of Tampa. Lee County Sheriff Carmen Mercino says officials have been overwhelmed with calls for rescues. It is heart-wrenching. Uh, I will tell you that we have made some rescues through waterways uh, and some we're not able to access. We have thousands of calls on 911 that are prioritized and we're answering as we speak. So while I don't have confirmed numbers, I definitely know the fatalities are, are in the hundreds. The president says it may be the deadliest hurricane in Florida's history. Nine confirmed deaths so far, including at least two on Sanibel Island, where Hurricane Ian ripped away several parts of the causeway that was the island's only access to Florida's mainland. Dozens of people remain stranded there tonight, according to the mayor, Holly Smith. And Sanibel Island is where we find Kenny Briggs. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Hey, what's going on? Tell me about just what it looks like around you. I've seen some images of uh, some aerial images of Sanibel. It looks just the destruction is almost indescribable. What's it look like around you tonight? Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty bad. I was by Sanibel Lighthouse, is where I live, and uh, the destruction was just uh, just immaculate. I, it, it was just uh, a horrendous experience. Yeah, Sorry, I've about, had a I've had a few beers. It was just just a horrible night. I'm sure it's been a horrible night, Kenny. And, and I t- thanks for taking the time too. I think everyone understands how much how difficult it must be. Uh, what was it like yesterday? I mean, you decided to stay. Uh, I guess everyone there has seen hurricanes before, but this was the surge. It was the water, right? Well, I was I'm pretty new to the area, but my girl. So we moved here because you know we wanted to be closer to her family, and her family said, "Well." 
it's not going to be a major hurricane. It's only probably going to remain a Category 3, and it's most likely just going to hit Tampa. And for the longest time, everyone just assumed it was going to hit Tampa. It's going to hit Tampa, and then it ended up hitting uh, hitting us direct on. And what was that like? I mean, I, I I can't imagine. I mean, I've seen images of tsunamis and so on, but I can't imagine what it must have been like when, when the wind started to blow and then the water came. Where you are, it's a barrier island, right? You're kind of right out in the middle. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It was... Uh, it, it was just horrendous. Um, you know, we were both downstairs, and uh, it was just my girl and I, and we were just uh, downstairs. The power was out, and then water started rushing through the wall, and we started going upstairs, and, oh, my God, it was just – and it started climbing up the stairs, and we didn't – the surge was so bad. I, I've never seen anything like it. And, fortunately, it just kind of stopped at the stairway. But uh, we looked over the balcony, and usually you can see uh, see the lighthouse over the trees. And the light was out in the lighthouse. And I told Kelly, I said, Kelly, the, the lighthouse is gone. The lighthouse is, is destroyed, which fortunately oh. is still standing. Just the light is out. But uh, it was really bad. And then we came out today, and my van was up. It was flipped over against the trees. I'm a, I'm a plumber. It was right. flipped up against the trees, and we were talking with the neighbors, and they told me, that there was a girl that got crushed under her house and that she didn't make it. And it, it was just definitely, it was my, my first and last time riding out a hurricane. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad to hear you're okay though. Right. You and your girl, you're okay. Everything's all right. You're, you're, yeah, you're home. You're safe. You're yeah. Yeah. We're, we're okay. What, what, what will you do now? I mean, I, I gather there are people are pr- pretty much stranded on, on Sanibel at this point. Are, are you waiting for someone to come get you or what's, what's been happening this evening? And, well, and they've had rest- how- yeah. Well, I've had boats, boats here and helicopters. That was the first thing we heard this morning was just the helicopters and the boats. And the road is coming into the island is completely destroyed. It's just absolutely, you just cannot even pass over it. So everything's been through boats. Right now, we decided to stay just because, like, we remember what happened during Katrina, like when they had everyone go to the stadium. So right. I, I was kind of worried about us going to that. Plus, I've always been a prepper, so we have plenty of food and, and clean water and everything. We just we still can't use the plumbing and the power still out. Right. So you're just gonna gonna wait it out for a while. What next for you? Are, are you gonna? I mean, I imagine we're, the rebuilding is going to be difficult. But you've moved there recently um, for family reasons. Is your, is everyone in the family okay? Yeah, everyone in her family is okay. So. I mean, there's just really nothing to do but wait. Uh, I work over at Davis Plumbing, so we're just going to, you know, I'm just going to go and help out the community, do whatever I can, you know. So hopefully we can get things going again and, you know. I remember being in areas where there's been really bad storms, like in the Philippines. What always struck me about the aftermath is how quiet it was. It must be, I don't know what kind of activity is going on around you, but at night it got really quiet and it was it was strange. It really is, especially the the airy silence when there's just nothing but destruction. It's I've never heard it that quiet before because like there's always tourists and stuff here, you know, and yeah. so it was really airy. And the, the winds were so strong, like I've never seen winds that strong before. Like you know, growing up as a kid, you know, we had had tornado warnings and stuff like that, so I was used to like strong winds, but this was just something else and then when the glass broke upstairs it it, it just definitely was uh something else it, it was traumatizing 
Well, Kenny, I, I, I wish you the very best. I know it's going to be a rough few days. And it, just thinking about what you've seen too, like it just settles in after a while, right? Like it, it takes a while just to, once the adrenaline's gone, you start to realize what you've been through and it's, it's terrifying. Like it's terrifying to think back about what it is that you just did and lived through. For sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, from what I've heard though, like from talking to neighbors, they said that, you know, they felt like the impact would be a lot worse than what we made off of. So we're really grateful. God is good and takes care of us. So. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time tonight. Stay safe. Um, best of luck to you and your and your girlfriend. Um, I hope everything recovers, rebuilds. And in the meantime, yeah, just um, be safe. All right. You too. Thank you. We've been discussing the devastation in that area that Ian has left behind, a Category 4 when it made landfall with 250 kilometer an hour winds, but it was really those towering storm surges that caused all the damage. Now, Naples, south along the coast from Fort Myers, saw huge waves flooding and trapped people in their homes as well. There was a curfew in place last night. I'm not sure what's up tonight. Roads washed out. Devastating is how the mayor described it. And joining me now is Collier County Commissioner Penny Taylor. Thank you so much for your time tonight. You're welcome. Thank you for this opportunity. It's, I'm sure it's been a really difficult day, but what's, what's it like tonight? What's, uh, what, was your, what was the day like and what's it like tonight? Today is, a, you know, when, the, uh, this is, when these things happen, it's, it, you know, you, you try to communicate with your constituents. You try to understand what's going on, and the only way to do that is to get out there. And so that's what I did for most of the day. Um, what we're finding, of course, is it's the day after uh, the winds have gone down. Uh, the sun actually came out later this afternoon. Uh, but And we have actually have a bit of a cold front coming through, which is very nice because we don't have power. Uh, there is power in pockets, but that's it. Uh, people are leaving, you know, when you drive around, it's, this is the most moving part. You know, the door is open, their furniture, all their goods are on the street, outside of the house. Um, you know, rugs are, try- they're trying to dry rugs out. Um, there's, when I drove around, there's cars uh, in, in medians and boats turned over and moorings on their side. Um, jet skis, um, you know, a jet ski was uh, on the side of the road, uh, lampshades, um, clothes. Uh, it, it is a, it is a site we have not seen in this community for many, many years. I would say for last 60, because the old timers will tell you, this is what Donna was, but we didn't have this kind of density of people. We didn't have, um, the, this kind of, uh, I think, wealth that this community had. When, when Donna came through, uh, some homes survived, many didn't, and they just rebuilt. On this one, um, you've got a lot of homes that are, are still, still sound. It's not, it's not a Irma hurricane. This wasn't about wind in, in Collier now. It mm-hmm. was about water. And it was about a flood that came through. Uh, the wave action was just profound. And what happened is the hurricane, when you're on the east side of a hurricane, it's the worst side to be on. And so what happened was 
as the hurricane came towards us, it it wobbled, it wobbled towards us and decided it was going to land uh, north of us, but not as far north as we were hoping. So it got closer to us. After it went through about mm, 12 o'clock or so on uh, Wednesday, uh, it, that, then we got the, the bad side of it, the, the, the side that, you know, you realize you're in a hurricane, um, high winds, gusty, 100, and 110 miles. And the, and water. the water. And the water. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I've obviously been in places later. where water's been. It's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, are you still rescue? Are there still people trapped? Are there still people? Are, are rescues still happening no, where you no, are? No. Okay. Everyone's no, okay. No. Okay. This is this is north of us. That's in Lee County. Yeah. Lee yeah, County, Fort Myers mm-hmm. Beach doesn't exist anymore. Apparently, it's just completely wiped. It's like Mexico Beach up in the Panhandle when they had that storm. Um, right. They they because that's you know the closer the eye got to the coast, the more damage it got. It gave everyone. Um, in fact, the water was there was more water going in North Collier County than there was coming into downtown. Downtown was about five feet. North Collier was different. It was eight to 10 feet. I've been, I've been hearing, you know, complete berms, structures, long ones have just, it just disappeared. Uh, It was powerful. It was quick and it didn't stop. Now, I know you've been in, I should mention to my listeners that you've had a photography business in Naples for 40 years. This is your home. You spent a lot of time promoting uh, Collier County as a tourist destination. What will you do now? I mean, obviously, Canadians know that area very well. A lot of us head down there in the winter. Uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of work to be done, I'm sure. It must be daunting. Yes, there is a lot of work to be done. The beaches have really taken uh, quite a hit, especially in the north part of Collier, um, we do have assistance from the federal government in terms of uh, grants and also from the state government. Uh, and we do have, you know, a, a very um, a, a respectable uh, tourist fund that we raise tourist taxes for beach renourishment. So it will be renourished, um, but, you know, we need to get we need to get through this. Um, and the, it's funny about beaches. They, they come and they go. Uh, but yeah. in this case, um, we will probably not be able to re-nourish until next year because of our turtles. What, um, what does the next 24 and 48 hours look like for you uh, as Collier County Commissioner? What, what needs to be done? Um, what I'm doing now is uh, really surveying and and you know, ascertaining what is what has happened. Uh, I understand now we're going to start doing some work where we're going to go into neighborhoods. Uh, I am hopefully I'm going to be part of that group that starts knocking on doors to see where we know there there was flooding. We're going to ask folks about, you know, what we can do and, and really do some clear evaluation so we can assess for government purposes the extent of the damage so i'm going to be part of that but also just just know that it wasn't just it wasn't just the hurricane that pushed the water from the gulf of mexico it was the fact that that hurricane came the back the back side of that hurricane came at high tide and at high tide what happened is you know the the waters rise we've got the bay of naples naples bay behind us we've got canals people living on canals so the water comes up the water goes out well guess what that wind was south coming from the south southeast 
the water didn't go out. So not only did the beach area get inundated, there's flooding in the lower parts of Collier Inland. So it's devastating. Uh, It really is. And um, we just have to get to work. We'll get through it. But it really does call one uh, to understand that you don't argue with Mother Nature. (laughs) You can't. It is what it is. Um, Penny Taylor, thank you so much for your time tonight. I wish you the best of luck. Obviously, Canadians will be watching and, and hoping for you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for this opportunity. This, again, as I was mentioning earlier, is a really astounding story. The U.S. Justice Department is threatening possible legal action against city officials in Jackson, Mississippi, if they don't agree to negotiations to fix the city's beleaguered water system, warning that an imminent and substantial endangerment to human health exists. Can you imagine that? Now, Jackson is a city of 150,000 people. It's the state capital, no less. Recently, they experienced a week without reliable water service and an advisory to boil any water that does flow from faucets has been in place since late July. Now, this isn't new. There were warnings back in 2019 that this was all going to be a massive problem. And while places like Jackson and Flint, Michigan, horror stories about neglect and the outcomes get a lot of attention, um, this is actually a story repeating itself across many places in America at a smaller scale. Joining me now is Manu Lal. He's a hydroclimatologist. He's the director of the Columbia Water Center at Columbia University in New York. He's author and co-author of a number of studies that document the rise of contaminated drinking water in the United States. And he joins me now. Thanks for your time. Hi, Ben. How are you? I'm well. Uh, This incident in Jackson, Mississippi has raised, uh, has gotten a lot of attention. Even here in Canada, people have been paying attention to it. I think because it sort of, it symbolizes something we all really worry about, which is aging infrastructure eventually giving out and uh, we lose our most precious resource, which is drinking water, right? Yeah. So... In the U.S., this is a burgeoning crisis. Uh, and I don't know much about you know what the situation is in Canada, but in the U.S., this is precipitated by the fact that since about 1982, when President Reagan was in office, there really has not been the kind of federal investment uh, in upgrading and maintaining the water infrastructure as there should have been. And one graphic that the Office of Management and Budget uh, put up in 2017 is telling um, the the spending per person on water infrastructure by the federal government on an annual basis is like $17, whereas uh, for information technology, it's $251 per person. So that's an interesting way of looking at it. It is. I mean, I mean, the way you look at it, it must be, I, I don't want to use the word criminal, but but to neglect one's water supply, because we've all been in countries where they don't have water, right? Where you don't have, you can't rely on your drinking water. Um, and to think that America is on the way, you know, that America is in trouble when it comes to its drinking water supply. How bad is it? So that's a tough question because the what we can say is that if you look at drinking water violations that are reported to the EPA, they have been going up. Even for simple things like pathogens that have been monitored forever and been part of the standards. So so that's the first challenge. But the more interesting thing is what we see in perception. So in terms of perception, uh, bottled water sales three years ago 
eclipsed all other beverages in the country combined, I think. And uh, if you look at Amazon sales uh, for reverse osmosis systems that you install in the kitchen, which is what you know people in India do because they have no other choice, um, the systems that were around four or five hundred dollars a unit five years ago are now one hundred twenty. That doesn't happen just because Amazon wants to dump these things. It's because now the the demand has reached a scale where the cost of producing those things has come down and there are many more entrants in the market than there were before. So we are in a transition in that sense. And when we look at the demographics of the violations, they are typically uh, small to medium-sized cities, uh, predominantly minority communities, predominantly uh, communities where there's greater inequality in income and also, of course, lower incomes. So that's what we are looking at is a, you know, it's just another endpoint of the polarization of the country in a way. Where drinking water becomes a, a privilege for right. uh, not not a right. Yeah. Um, there is a new infrastructure bill that's been passed. Will that help? So we had a meeting a week ago where we invited the heads of all the federal agencies, uh, at least the non-political appointee ones, and they were here. And it was very nice to hear what they had to say. And they were very upbeat on getting the message across that President Biden has multiple pockets of bills that he has authorized um, under which there is substantial funds for the for the first time in a long time that are flowing towards water. And uh, everyone was really happy to hear that who was in the audience. And then one audience member asked, so how is this is going to be sustained? Is this a one-shot funding deal? And their answer to that question was not very quick in coming. And of course, when it came, it was, yes, of, of course, we recognize that water is an important issue. But, um, and it's a bipartisan issue. You know, that's that was being made, made very clear that this, this is something everybody agrees upon. However, if I look at the history of funding since 1982 to now, uh, the bipartisan aspect of it is not inspiring. So in the past 40 years, because it's exactly 40 years now, um, What's happened? I mean, it, 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 clearly, at one point in America, there was a system that was the envy of the world, right? In the fifties, the sixties, um, you know, a, a distribution system that was the envy of the world, and right. now it feels like it's been left, it's been neglected, right? And and so, so how did that? How does that happen? Is it just? It's just yeah. money. It's. I think it's a couple of things, um, and I'll give the analogy to what has happened in India as well, uh, mm-hmm. you know, as part of this. So, as you said, we were the state of the art for water supply in the, in the world here. And what has happened is that the dams started reach, reaching an age which is beyond what they were designed for. The pipes of different kinds started, in, started reaching an age beyond what they were designed for. Uh, same with treatment plants. And uh, people were taking all this wonderfully functioning infrastructure for granted. This is not where money needs to go. You know, so the parallel with India is that once you do not have adequate investment and you do not have adequate revenue into the system from the rates that allows uh, the system to be upgraded and maintained, 
it deteriorates. Once it deteriorates, the service suffers. And then the ratepayer's attitude is, this is crappy service. Why do I want to pay for this? So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in a sense. And it uh, spirals out of control. And I've seen that happen in India. And it's on on its way to happening here, uh, unfortunately. The, the one difference is that there is money here and there is the private sector uh, that sees the opportunity here. And uh, many people are opposed to the privatization of water. And, uh, you know, if you had asked me that question 20 years ago, I would have said, well, we teach that because of the cost of entry, water becomes a natural monopoly. So we don't really want the private sector to create a monopoly here. But I think where we have reached is uh, the private capital has to come in. And the question is, you know, how is that done equitably? How is that done such that the needs of the customers are foremost? And uh, there are some examples that are good and there are some examples that are terrible at the moment. Yeah, I, I lived in in England for a while, where there's been a huge deregulation of a lot of utilities, and it and it's tough. It's expensive. I'm speaking with Umano Lal. He's a hydroclimatologist, director of the Columbia Water Center, Columbia University in New York. Well, we're talking about uh, something you may have heard about recently, which is uh, water problems and issues in Jackson, Mississippi. But uh, Professor Lal is letting us know about how widespread an issue it is in America that a lot of the infrastructure that was State of the art, um, you know, 70 years ago, of course, is no longer so. It needs replenishing. It needs refurbishing. And uh, there hasn't been a lot of commitment to that of late. So when we come back, we'll find out what a new water system should look like, because one would think that uh, technology has changed a lot in the last 70 years, uh, let alone the last 40 years. And that could be applied to water in a way that would both make sense and make money. That's next. Our guest is Upmano Lal. He's a hydroclimatologist and director of the Columbia Water Center at Columbia University in New York. We've been talking about uh, the deterioration of water infrastructure in America, which is which is remarkable because of what a, just how important uh, how important a resource it is. I mean, there is no more important resource if you don't have drinking water in your town or access to water. Everything else seems kind of meaningless. And, let, and yet, as you pointed out in articles, Professor Lal, the investment in just about everything else outpaces water. You know, I don't want to sit here and complain about what has happened. It's not useful. Right. It's uh, enough. It's it's uh, is necessary to draw attention to the situation, but I think one of the things that society has failed at is raising an aspiration for what we would consider in the 21st century to be an acceptable system and at what price. Because if we play the game of a public sector monopoly or a private sector monopoly, and they're just providing in a very boring way a resource to us, we don't think about it. But if we have a certain aspiration, then the question is, who can satisfy that aspiration? So the way I would state that aspiration is that I don't want to pay much more for water. I understand I'll pay more if I demand more things from it. But when I turn on the tap, I would like to see what the quality of the water is. So I would like some verification, a quantitative verification of making sure that things I'm concerned about are not in there in some sense, right? And I was at a National Academy of Science panel on Flint, Michigan a couple few years ago, mm-hmm. and they were discussing uh, what needs to be done or what the nature of the problem is. And there was a woman who had come from Flint, Michigan, uh, and she had testified as to, you know, the horrors she and her family went through while they pay $150 a month 
or their water supply, which is tainted. And so listening to all that and to really people talking about how many lead pipes we need to remove, which is not going in an aspirational direction because it's just saying, okay, I'm going to fix your problem, but tomorrow you may have a different problem and I'm not talk- going to talk about that. You know. Mm-hmm. So my reaction was, I think for $150 a month, she should expect that when she gets on the night red-eye flight to go home, gets there at four in the morning, she can dial up from her phone and expect that there will be a warm bath ready for her. And once she's had her bath and is sitting down for coffee, she gets a message on her phone that the waste, the waters that she took the bath in has been treated by the treatment system in her house. And it is now perfectly satisfactory for drinking and can give her a readout if she wants or whatever goes on. Well, people said, yeah, that's very fine. Thank you. You know, this is boring. Uh, you're not really solving the problem. But I would disagree. I think you have to raise what our aspirations are for performance before people start addressing them. If our aspirations are we have we want flowing water coming out of a pipe, they'll meet that. They're not seeing anything more exciting than that. And I think we have to aspire for more. Uh, I differ from most people where I think the future is going to be in decentralized networks of systems. We should be able to use any source of water, whether it's rain or street, flooding or wastewater that we are generating or groundwater, if we have sensors that at the point of use tell you what's there and what's not there, uh, then we could have localized treatment systems that take any source and give you what you need. And then, you know, depending on what you're using the water for, the quality doesn't need to be the same. Because one of the reasons I bring this up is that the argument that is made today is that we can't treat PFAS to the standard that somebody wants. We can't treat X to the standard somebody wants because it's going to be too expensive and people will not pay for it. So my analysis of that is the following. 70 to 80% of the cost of our water system is in conveyance. It's in pumps and pipes. It's not in treatment. What we do is we build giant treatment plants because that's what we learn to do because someone could grab samples there and see what goes on. Then we ship it to people through broken pipes, and then they get contaminated water. What's the fun in that, right? So if we could come up with a way by which we cut the cost on the pipes and pumps because they are much more localized, then we can pay more for treatment. And if we are verifying that, then life is altogether better. So that's kind of the idea here is localization of these services, but with remote verification and control using digital technologies because we can do that today. That replaces having an army of chemists who will grab some samples and see what goes on in a large treatment plant. And uh, the reuse strategy creates resilience as part of this. The fact that it is localized, when it fails, people say, hey, that's my treatment plant that has failed, not the guy who's 10 blocks over. So they are actually mobilized to go and do something about it. Whereas if it's a city treatment plant, yeah, the city sucks. You know, that's kind of the reaction. So I think we need a change in the technology. It's not just a question of refurbishing existing systems, but the change in the technology should follow stated aspirations and what our willingness to pay for those aspirations is. It sounds like the solution is not to think of a, of just repeating what we've done for the last hundred exactly. years, but to actually think of something new because it's being done out there as well. Uh, Professor Lal, thank you so much for your time tonight. Okay, thanks very much. This was big news yesterday. Enbridge has signed a deal to sell a minority stake in seven pipelines in the Athabasca region of northern Alberta 
to a group of 23 First Nation Métis communities for $1.12 billion. Now, Alberta's Premier Jason Kenney called the purchase historic, a game-changing deal at a press conference um, that included a bunch of people. He says, again, this is the single largest Indigenous transaction in the natural resource sector in the history of North America. I'm not sure that's exactly true, but that's what he says. Here, though, is uh, Chief Greg Desjardins of the Frog Lake First Nation. It's going to allow us to send our people to treatment you know, it's going to allow us to deal with the, the mental crisis that we have in our, in our communities. That is Chief Greg Desjardins of the Frog Lake First Nation. Um, the group, which is called the Athabasca Indigenous Investments, is a limited partnership, again, of 23 Treaty 6 and Treaty 8 First Nations and Métis communities. It will manage the investment, which includes an 11.5% non-operating interest in the pipelines. And as we approach the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation tomorrow, the topic of where resources and resource extraction fits into that conversation, I felt was really an important one uh, around reconciliation and self-determination. So joining me now is Ellis Ross. He's the BC Liberal MLA for Skeena. He's the party's LNG and energy critic and a former Heisla Nation chief counselor. Uh, Ellis Ross, thanks for your time tonight. Not a problem, Ben. Your, your reaction, I guess, to the Enbridge deal, because it is a big deal. And, uh, you know, we were talking, there's a lot going on in the world, but uh, it struck me as being a really important deal as well. Oh, without a doubt. But it, but it's not really uh, new news. Uh, the, the idea of equity and ownership in these projects has been around for the better part of 18 years. Uh, but now the discussion is going from theory to reality. So it's, I mean, this, this discussion is happening in many different sectors, including forestry, mining, even LNG for that matter. So it's uh, it, it's quite satisfying to see it get to this stage, but it, I'm not really surprised by it. Yeah, I, I guess as we, one of the reasons that, uh, you know, as tomorrow's National Day for Truth and Reconciliation and, and this whole idea of, of, resource, of, of resources and how they can benefit communities, and I know this is something very close to you, um, where do you think that fits into this conversation? Well, let me take you back a bit to the, the Constitution of Canada. Section 35, that has been defined by the, by the courts of B.C. and Canada. And really, that's where the, you first hear the word reconciliation. And when you hear those words, it's mainly around the idea of resource development. So right. if the government's got to make a decision around, uh, say, some type of resource development like forestry or mining, then they've got to reconcile the Aboriginal rights and title with a government decision. And that's where really the word reconciliation came to be in Canada. I mean, you know, the, I was watching, uh, reading an interview, an interview you did with the Globe and Mail this week about the Kitimat project, which is uh, moving along. It's a massive project. A bit about that too. Just what uh, when you championed that project for Kitimat for uh, your community, what were the benefits that you saw there? Oh, uh, we went from uh, one of the poorest bands in BC to one of the wealthiest, and uh, contrary to what the news that you're actually talking about right now, mm-hmm. I actually declined equity in, in most of the projects that came across my desk, uh, mainly because uh, I felt that there were some deficiencies and lack of capacity in terms of what we could do as a band council. But uh, I know there's other bands out there that are, are more up to par with uh, making an equity stake in these major projects. But uh, the benefits uh, for my people is, is just across the board. I mean, we're no longer reliant on Indian Act money coming from Ottawa, uh, we're not reliant on BC government. We're actually building our own youth center, elder center, soccer field. You name it, we're doing it on our own. And uh, quite frankly, the, the governments now are not coming to us willingly. 
wanting to give us money to be part of our success story. So it's it's completely turned our people around. You took some heat for it, though. You continue to, I mean, you've taken heat over it for, for, for years now. From uh, Why do you think that is? Uh, I think because the, the rhetoric and the narrative uh, against big, bad government and big, bad corporations and the big, bad white man has been so ingrained in people. And to be honest, before I became a, a, a leader back in 2003, I, I had a bit of that ingrained in me. It took me a couple of years to realize that that narrative actually wasn't true. And if anything, uh, if, if anything was holding us back, it was uh, people like myself that were believing these false narratives. So, But, but there's a lot of uh, uh, anti-resource development that are based on the idea that First Nations don't like resource development or don't want to develop the land. And that's that, that couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah, explain that, because I think that is a perception that many people have. Yeah, well, uh, the original uh, LNG projects, there was many of them in BC. There was 18 at one time, but about three of them were centered in my territory, in, in Kitimat Village territory. And really, we're the ones in 2004 that started exploring LNG, and then we brought it to the BC government and the federal government said, look, you got to get behind this LNG. It's a great initiative. We can supply clean energy to the world, plus we can lift our people out of poverty. It wasn't until seven years later in 2011 when Christy Clark came to power in BC and said, okay, let's take a look at it. But this idea that uh, somehow the BC government or the NDP or the federal government were responsible for LNG is false. It was actually us as First Nation leaders from Kitimat to Prince George and some down the coast. And it, it, it was actually related to forestry as well and mining in other sectors as well. But we always had the idea that we could get away from the Indian Act if we actually brought in our own money and then we could be able to stand our own two feet. And you've you've been watching attentively as as this demand for LNG has really grown. Uh, you've been talking about uh, wanting to bring the German Chancellor to Kitimat or go to Germany yourself to talk to people about this. So uh, you you believe that there's a there's opportunity here as well. I mean, obviously Canada doesn't look like we're going to be able to provide what we what they need, uh, but maybe there's a conversation to be had there if you go. Well, without a doubt. And the only reason Canada and BC will not be able to provide it because the political will is not there. I mean, back in 2004, 2005, people were telling us that the export of LNG would never happen. You couldn't do it. And then lo and behold, I, LNG yeah. Canada, the $40 billion investment gets done. So, And Europe back in those days was part of the conversation. But Europe kind of sloughed us off and said, no, we got our own energy. Thank you very much. So we focused on India and uh, China. So I do believe if Canada and BC won't entertain Germany and Europe in terms of their energy crisis, then I think First Nations should pick up the ball and go to Ottawa and talk to European ambassadors and then head out to Germany in March for the uh, LNG conference. Yeah, it'd be, uh, I mean, it, it, it's certainly it's an interesting way of looking because the, the need is there, right? Have you had any response from any ambassadors? Have you reached out to anyone? No. Uh, well, I did yeah. try to talk to uh, uh, the Consul General in Vancouver, but I, I do believe they've got their own plans in place right. to come up to terrorists and Kitimat and look at the LNG projects. Uh, but uh, but I'm not going to stop. I'm, I think this is a, a global issue. And if, if we're not part of the solution, I think we're definitely part of the problem. So I, I truly believe some First Nation leaders believe the same thing I believe. Yeah. Ellis Ross is our guest this half hour. He's the BC Liberal MLA for Skeena. He's the party's LNG and energy critic and a former Heisla Nation chief counsellor. Uh, of course, the major 
Kitimat project at the LNG facility there. That will be Canada's first, by the way. It should be, I guess, up and running by 2025, we believe. It's about 70% complete. Uh, there'll be a pipeline built into there as well. And we've been talking a lot about LNG these days uh, because of what's going on in Europe and their huge sudden need for a lot more energy as they wean themselves off Russian energy. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more about this idea of reconciliation and resources. Stay with us. Ellis Ross is our guest this half hour. He's the BC Liberal MLA for Skeena. He's the party's LNG and energy critic. He's a former Heisla Nation chief counselor uh, and also one of the drivers behind the very big Kitimat project, LNG project that is unfolding as we speak. Nearly 70% done, I think. I mean, it's going to be, I get the impression with all the talk of LNG these days, Ellis, it's going to be a very big deal when that is up and running. It is currently right now with the amount of work that's being done on terminal. It is massive. And I, and I saw pictures of this throughout the last uh, 18 years, looking at PowerPoints and whatnot, and I've seen presentations. But to see it in person is just, oh, it's just incredible. I, I didn't anticipate uh, this magnitude of scale. But it's, it's still uh, you know, over a decade of work from a lot of different leaders, and especially my band, my band council. When you look at... Um at the last 10 years, I mean, and I know you, you advocate, of course, for, for projects, maybe not as big as yours, but projects like yours are a great way to uh, to make sure that uh, the different First Nations around the country can can benefit. Um, what advice do you have, though? Because there must have been lots of ups and downs as you went through this. Well, when we first started in 2004, there was really no examples for us uh, to look at in B.C. So we went around B.C., we went around Alberta, and we couldn't find one example that fit what we were going to go through. Because we're looking at not just uh, LNG Canada, we're looking at Chevron's $30 billion project. So we had to basically, you know, put this together by ourselves. We had to create a relationship with the BC government by ourselves. Uh, so really my advice that, uh, to anybody getting involved with these types of projects is understand exactly what process is in front of you. Understand the politics that's in front of you. And if you truly want you know, a better future for yourself and for your descendants, whether you're native or non-native, then truly keep an open mind and, and don't, don't, don't give in to the politics or the rhetoric. Yeah, because there's a lot of politics involved. I mean, you've been pretty outspoken about some of the criticism you've, you've taken, some of the criticism we hear from Hollywood and so on. Um, you know, as, we, as we approach tomorrow, uh, the 30th, I know your parents went to residential school. I mean, this is something it's close to you. Where do you think this all, where, where can we have a conversation about reconciliation and resource development where people aren't just divided on these two sides and yelling at each other? Well, I could take you down to the basics of why I did this in the first place. Like ultimately what I'm doing, I knew this would benefit BC. I knew it would benefit Canada in terms of uh, revenues for the government, for economy, for jobs, for everybody. But ultimately back when I first started, I wanted to dig our people out of poverty and what we did here in Kitimat actually succeeded. So to the Leonardo DiCaprio's and, and then there's these Ruffalo characters and Susan Sarandon's, I mean, you're, you're sitting on your high horse in Hollywood and you're criticizing us, but I don't see you here trying to resolve suicides. I don't see you here trying to resolve per capita the, 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 the greatest amount of people going into prison are First Nations. I don't see you trying to resolve 80% unemployment on our reserves. And yet here, when you come to Kitimat, you can see a success story. And ultimately, I kept saying this over and over because it was actually uh, one of my uh, 
virtues that were actually built into me by my people. Ultimately, we want to tell Ottawa at some point, we don't need your money. We don't want your funding. The Indian Act means nothing to us. We are truly independent. And we're, we're pretty close. I'd say we're probably 95% close. So if you really want to see how to resolve First Nations issues across the board, not totally, but across the board, then come look at our band, come talk to us, come see our success, and come see how it's actually changed our outlook, starting from our council right down to our individual people, whether we're talking about people that stayed out of prison or single moms or, or even people my age that never even had a job in their life, and, and, it's, and their life has turned around. So this, this is what I try to tell people around the world. The, the, the First Nations issues in Canada, it's possible to solve them, but not with government programs, not with what we've been doing for the last 50 years. It's got to be a brand-new playbook. Yeah, what is that? I mean, that, what is that playbook is obviously evolving for you, right? What do you think it looks like in 2022? I think hopefully that uh, the idea of First Nations getting involved with just projects does not make the news. It's just run-of-the-mill, running a province, running a country, and no longer are we talking about uh, the social issues of First Nations people, but we're talking more about how First Nations are more integrating more with the political lives of BC and Canada. Like, take, for example, COVID. Uh, my band, when when they saw how bad COVID was going to be, donated $300,000 to a local hospital to help them with cost. They helped the local food banks. They helped with uh, employment and training by buying a private post-sec institute in town that's open to everybody in BC. I mean, that's that's truly another level of reconciliation because reconciliation really means, if you look up in dictionary, it's two parties coming back together. That's what reconciliation means. And for the most part, we've achieved that here in Kitimat. And there's no animosity between the natives and non-natives here because we can see that the benefit of the LNG project and the aluminum smelter modernization and the forestry programs, everybody's benefiting, not just natives. So what does tomorrow mean for you then this year? Oh, tomorrow for me means that my uh, grandkids will not have to go through the things I went through. They will not have to uh, go through going from welfare to unemployment insurance to a part-time job and back to welfare. They will not have to think about the idea that uh, they can't get a house because they're not on the list for the bank council. They can actually go to the bank, get their mortgage, and get a, a house just like everybody else. They can, like just like my daughters, planning vacations, uh, buying a house, just enjoying life. You know, without the, the false narratives or the false rhetoric, that's ultimately what tomorrow looks like for me. Well, Ellis Ross, um, as always, thank you so much for your time tonight. A very interesting perspective. And uh, yeah, I, I appreciate you sharing your story with us today. All right. Thank you very much, Ben. Let's go to Ukraine now, because Russian President Vladimir Putin plans to attend a ceremony at the Kremlin tomorrow in Moscow that will see four regions of Ukraine illegally annexed, I should say illegally annexed, by Moscow. The move comes after voters, they weren't voting, supposedly approved independence and referendums managed by Moscow um, at gunpoint, mostly, that Ukraine and the West have denounced as illegal, forced and rigged, because of course they are. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau continues to condemn Russia's planned annexation of those parts of Ukraine, calling the votes held there illegal and illegitimate. He's promising more sanctions from Canada. 
Meantime, at the UN, the Secretary General said it marks a dangerous escalation today. Um, you know, it's 15% of Ukrainian territory. They did this. This playbook comes from 2014 with Crimea. But here's what the reality of it is. When they make it Russian territory, even if they're the only ones who recognize it, um, it is the largest forcible annexation of European territory since the Second World War. It also means that Putin will then claim at least to defend it um, from recapture, even though it is in fact Ukrainian land, and he doesn't control huge parts of it. So they'll continue to fight for it. So it means the war will continue undoubtedly. Um, and it won't be part of negotiations to return it to Ukraine later. So it tries to establish facts on the ground, which he's not really in a position to establish, but he'll try anyway. Joining me now with more on this is in fact Canada's ambassador to the UN, Bob Ray. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you, Ben. Good to be with you again. Yeah, I mean, this really feels like like an escalation, doesn't it? Like um, like a change of tactic. But um, just your reaction to this announcement that the formal annexation, the illegal annexation, uh, will be formalized in Moscow tomorrow. Well, I don't think there's any real surprise. Um, the, the it's it's essentially a tactic which uh, allows Mr. Putin to declare victory. Um, uh, to say this is what it was all about in the first place, and um, we are formalizing that, um, as he did with Crimea. Um, the, the thing we have to remember is that the conflict, however, is is not over. Um, he is uh, he continues to, uh, to 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 fight and to send missiles in and to and to continue to try to destroy Ukraine's infrastructure. Um, he, he, Ukraine continues to fight to, uh, on, on these borders on the south and, and, uh, and, um, and east and north of the country, uh, which is territory which Russia has originally made significant gains on compared to where they were in February, uh, and then, um, was pushed back quite a lot by Ukraine, and now they've said, okay, now we're going to annex. It's not completely clear. I mean, it looks as if they're annexing um, parts of the country uh, that they don't even control right now, uh, which is strange strange in my view. But it's also a, a tactic that's designed to say, look, we're now defending the homeland. We're defending our homeland, uh, and you're attacking us. So we have a right to self-defense against that, and that's what this is all about. So he can, he can at once, in the same time, he can say we've, you know, we've consolidated our victory, uh, and at the same time give him a narrative that allows him to say we're defending um, our country. Um, that creates a, another possibility, a set of possibilities about what additional steps he might take to deal with a country that. The Ukraine that he would now describe as the aggressor, uh, because if he's if he's defending his territory, and Ukraine is trying to take it back, then and and he's now declared that the territory that he stole is his. Uh, it allows him to say um, we're defending ourselves against the aggressor, which which is a if I may say so, it it, it fits into the kind of narrative war. The war of propaganda uh, that he has been fighting from the beginning. I mean, nobody bought the special military operation line. Nobody bought the denazification and 
all that other nonsense that he was talking about at the beginning. So now he thinks he's got a more credible narrative that he can talk about defending contested territory that is no longer contested because we've annexed it and it now belongs to us. Um, and and I think it's a it's a to that extent it's a it's a change that uh, we all have to respond to. Yeah, because it does bring in, I mean, he's talked about this, it does bring into the equation the notion of, of tactical nuclear weapons, of course, defending what is now Russian territory, at least according to Moscow. And and, and that certainly raises the stakes diplomatically in your shoes, I would imagine. Yes and no. I mean, I have to say that uh, I, I think that when uh, Jake Sullivan from the U.S. and, and other experts uh, say uh, we have to take it seriously, uh, I'm not going to disagree with them. Uh, I think, it, of course, when somebody says I'm going to use a nuclear weapon, you, you, can't, you can't you can't just dismiss it. Um, but I think that even for even for President Putin, who who is who has made the classic mistake, I think, of giving into his impulses in this war. Uh, and if you if you think and act impulsively, you always get into trouble. Uh, I think most people know that <laughs> based on their own behavior. Um, and I, I think that um, the use of nuclear weapons is, is something that if you were to use them impulsively, it would have terrible, terrible consequences. Um, and it would be, have consequences that would, do, that would do Russia no good at all and do the world no good at all. Um, I think I don't think he cares very much about the world, and I don't think he cares if he pollutes and poisons other people. The history would show, that the evidence would show that he doesn't care about that. But I think he has to be concerned about the consequences to his own country of such a uh, not. I wouldn't even describe it as risky, such a disastrous uh, maneuver, uh, because he would be basically uh, writing his own epitaph. Um, in, in ways that I, I think he he wouldn't want at all to do. So I I mean I know that people do things sometimes that don't make sense or don't appear to serve their interests, but this one would absolutely not serve his interests. It's always that question as to whether or not Putin is a rational actor uh, or or isn't he? How are you? He what are you hearing from your European counterparts? I know we're heading into a winter. There's a lot of concern about energy shortages. We're seeing what's happening in the UK this week with their economy. Um, you know, this would seem to offer an end in some ways, not a good end. It would be a frozen conflict with more, 15% more of Ukraine's territory gone. But do you sense there's any desire from some of Ukraine's allies now to try to push this towards a conclusion, at least an unhappy one for all sides? No, no. I don't think so. Um, certainly not not publicly, not even privately. Um, in conversation uh, at the UN, where there's lots of corridors and lots of conversations that happen privately, um, I don't I don't believe that's the case. I think that uh, if you take this this uh, Nord Stream pipeline uh, explosion, uh, I think the Europeans are coming to appreciate more and more. Um, that they are dealing and we are all dealing with um, a really bad actor uh, and with a state that um, is impulsive, reckless, and uh, and ruthless. And that this is, and in many ways, in, in ways that are completely incompatible with membership, the participation, leadership of 
the United Nations. Um, they're they're not just a member of the UN; they're a, a permanent member, and they are they are a, a member with a veto on the Security Council. And they're behaving like a rogue state. And and when countries do that, uh, it it doesn't. I think it's not something which lends itself to, you know, hey, I got a good idea. Let's do a deal with a rogue state. I mean, why would you do that? I, I don't think that's what people are thinking. I think the problem that Europeans have is is the consequence of, of their decision to become as energy dependent on Russia as they have become. And that is a huge problem. Uh, and and we're, we are all going to do whatever we can, whatever every country can do to help them get through what will be a, a difficult winter. Um, but I, I don't believe that that in itself is going to, is going to lead people to want to do a deal that is from any objective standpoint against their own interest. Um, I think Mr. Putin's behavior is such that doing a deal with him is of, is of no interest to, to a lot of countries that might before have said, yes, we have no choice but to do some kind of a deal with, uh, I don't think people feel that way anymore. I'm speaking with Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray. We're talking about Russia's announcement that they will uh, formally and illegally announce the annexation of about 15% of Ukrainian territory tomorrow. These are four different areas, two in the east, two in the south, or one in the middle, rather, Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporizhia, and Kherson. Um, and the reaction to it, we come back, uh, what should be the reaction to it? Obviously, the Prime Minister today condemning the referenda that were held uh, as shams, as most of the world has. But what is the proper response now? We'll get to that after this. Bob Ray is with us this half hour. He's Canada's ambassador to the United Nations. We're talking about uh, Russia's plans to formally and illegally announce the annexation of about 15% of Ukrainian territory uh, on Friday in Moscow. Uh, this follows uh, this, a series of, of highly illegal referenda in those areas whereby the Moscow now claims that uh, there is a public will in these provinces or these areas to join the Russian Federation. And of course, uh, Mr. Ray was discussing the... Um, you know, the, the tactic at play here in Moscow, that this then allows them to claim that this is now Russian territory and any encroachment on it, even by the Ukrainians, of course, it's their land, uh, would be seen as an act of aggression. Um, so, so, Mr. Ray, what is the proper response now? I mean, we've heard a lot of condemnation, which is fine. New sanctions, I guess. I mean, how do you tighten the screw uh, screws on, on Russia for this one? Well, I don't think I don't think it's from our point of view, I think tightening the screws is what we can do. I think we can continue to arm Ukraine and provide Ukraine with the assistance, both financial uh, and in terms of equipment and, and so on that uh, that they need, as well as the humanitarian assistance that uh, that the UN needs and others need who are who are caring for um, the millions of Ukrainians who've been displaced and left. I, I think the Ukrainians will fight. The Ukrainians will continue to fight and try to press back against the uh, the incursion. Uh, and I think we're seeing signs of that already. Uh, the uh, In the north, uh, the Ukrainians have taken back Kharkiv, and they pushed well beyond Kharkiv to uh, to another fallback position of the Russians. And I I think they'll be pushing back very hard uh, on on those on those positions in the in the northeast of the country, as well as in the southwest of the country, and and wherever else they can. They can make uh, they can make real progress uh, militarily. Um, the so-called Russian um, conscription is 
probably not going to produce a bunch of trained soldiers who are ready to fight on the border uh, on that new on that new line on the on the on the line of, of conflict uh, for quite some time. So I I think that what led to the Russian collapse um, of their defensive of their offensive position and moved them back on the back foot. Uh, I don't think that those conditions have changed. Uh, and the fact that in response to the conscription, more people have left the country than have been signed up, uh, which is quite an incredible statistic when you think about it. It is. Uh, and it's, that's what, what the announcement of the conscription has led to is a greater loss of population than they've been able to conscript. And plus, the people that they've lost are people who are uh, bright, well-educated, and, and ready to move. And, and uh, that, I think, is, is devastating for the Russian economy as well as for the, the practical reality of how any country fights a war when the population is opposed to it. Uh, even dictators have to be aware of public opinion. Uh, and I think that's what Mr. Putin is having to come to grips with. Do you think there's a little hangover here from 2014? You know, the annexation of Crimea was done. We felt, I mean, I was there at the time uh, from a position of stealth and strength in Moscow. It feels like this one is very different. Um, and I can't imagine the outcome will be the same, but the playbook is the same. And I don't, it's not surprising that he would return to that playbook, but it feels like it's not nearly like, like it was in 2014. But perhaps our thoughts of 2014 and what happened then are still there now. In other words, that he can, you know, change the reality on the ground, even though in this case, it looks like he probably couldn't. Well, I mean, don't forget the, 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 the person who wrote the book on annexation and, and, uh, uh, changing facts on the ground is Adolf Hitler. Right. Uh, his whole tactic on, in Sudetenland uh, to the east of Germany and to the west of Germany and the, and the Rhineland was exactly the same. You you take over territory and then you stare the other guy down say, what are you going to do about it? That's exactly what, uh, what Putin did in Crimea. I, I think we all bear, uh, in, in all of NATO countries, everyone bears a lot of a lot of responsibility for our failure to respond in such a way that Putin would have had to think twice about doing it again. Um, I think he, I think he felt having succeeded in Crimea from his perspective, uh, I think he felt that he could succeed here with the, with the same, uh, lack of resistance. I think he's, he's been proven wrong, uh, in this, in that the, there's been incredible resistance and resilience from the Ukrainian people, Ukrainian army, and there's been incredible joined joined up determination on the part of Europe to to respond to uh, to the to the aggression. But he wouldn't be the first dictator who's had one experience and thinks that's the way it's going to be, and then is surprised when the when the reaction is very different. I mean, historically, Hitler. I think believed that he could march into Poland just as he marched into Czechoslovakia, uh, and that there would be no more resistance or action on the part of Europeans than there was before, and uh, he was proven wrong. And so, uh, I think Mr. Putin's been proven wrong to think that he can do this uh, without facing any consequence. Bob Ray, as always, thank you so much. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Hey, Vancouver. Thinking about moving out of British Columbia? Why not consider Alberta? It has higher salaries, lower taxes, and a lower cost of living. 
Yeah, those are radio ads. You've been hearing them, I'm sure. They're billboards. It's a whole campaign coming out of Alberta. Now, it turns out Canadians are already on the move to Alberta. They appear to be reaping the benefits so far, uh, particularly from those leaving Ontario. According to new figures from StatsCan, nearly 10,000 more people relocated to the province from other parts of the country in the second quarter of the year than left. That is the largest net inflow of people into Alberta since the spring of 2014. Now, Alberta was leading destination among Canadians moving from a whole bunch of places, Ontario, BC, Saskatchewan, Yukon, and narrowly Manitoba. So what's behind the stats? No one is better placed to answer that than Rob Roach. He's Deputy Chief Economist at ATB Financial. He's in Calgary tonight. Thanks for your time. Hi, good evening, Ben. So what's going on here? It's, uh, it's always, you know, it's stat- statistics are always interesting. There must be a story here, too. What's, uh, what are we seeing? Well, there's a, there's a lot of interesting things going on. One is that, you know, Alberta, uh, very sensitive to ups and downs in uh, especially the oil and gas industry. And things are going fairly well in Alberta's oil and gas industry at the moment. And sure enough, as a result, not entirely, but certainly related, we're starting to see a net inflow of people again from other parts of the country, which is a nice reversal from Alberta's perspective, really from 2015 up until about a year ago, we were losing people to other parts of the country. So nice turnaround um, for Alberta in terms of the inflow of people into our province. Yeah, I, I gather, I mean, these are, do you know who's coming? Because I was looking around, I gather these are 20-somethings, always good, you know, always good to bring young people in who are going to sort of set up and, and build a life. Yeah, we, we don't know a lot about, Um, the individual characteristics of the movers because um, there isn't a survey that says why did you move and was it for a job was it for retirement was it for school but we do know that it is it skews younger and that's not unusual because Alberta tends to be a place that attracts people for employment and it tends to be people of working age whereas you know maybe somewhere like Victoria might be getting um, more people at the retirement age coming in so we know a little bit about about the characteristics that they are younger and largely job seekers. I mean, that's what's bringing people uh, to Alberta from other places at the moment. Uh, one of the things I found interesting, of course, to come from Manitoba or Saskatchewan or even BC, it's not that far, but you got most of your people from Ontario. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on why you, why Alberta became so attractive to Ontarians uh, of late. I, I imagine it's probably work, but uh, it is a long way to go, right? It is a long way to go. And uh, there's a couple things going on here. Well, really three. One is Of course, Ontario is the largest uh, in terms of population uh, province in the country. So you're going to get more people just naturally because of the large population. But it's also because of two other things. One is Alberta is doing relatively well um, compared to other parts of the country. And Ontario is doing not so well relative to other parts of the country. So um, that's one of the reasons if if Ontario is doing well, it's less of a reason to pick up stakes and, and try somewhere else. The other factor, um, and it's hard to pinpoint exactly how big of a factor this is, but, you know, an average house in Toronto, much more expensive than an average house in Calgary, Edmonton. So that's probably another um, part of the, the, the variables in play here is that affordability, especially on the housing side. And this is this has been a bit of a trend, right? Of late, it's been a couple of quarters now that you've seen a, a net inflow after, and as you mentioned earlier, losing almost fifty thousand people to other parts of the country uh, over that six-year span from twenty fifteen to twenty twenty one. So we're seeing a bit of a reversal here. Yeah, so it, it's been about it, well, it's been four quarters in a row. So you know, one quarter 
you don't want to put too much weight on it, but you know, yeah. four quarters in a row, it, it is a, it is a, it is a trend, and one that we expect to continue. And and like I said earlier, it really is a pretty big reversal. We lost uh, here in Alberta, like you said, all close to fifty thousand people since um, you know twenty fifteen. We've gained about twenty one, twenty two thousand in the last four quarters. So making up the ground, which is positive, but you know there's still a gap. Uh, leftover from really a long period where we were struggling economically here in Alberta. Uh, how much do you think this one is linked again? I mean, obviously oil prices are up and we always conflate, you know, always conflate that with, with people moving to Alberta. I mean, I remember back in the early eighties when I was in Montreal, we, my mom moved to Edmonton. I was out there for a while. She was, wasn't in the oil business, but there was just that flow of people that came in all over that time. Do you think it's as linked this time to that, or I mean, are you are you looking at other factors too? Because you know the housing thing is a, is a really big deal these days. You know, I mean, I'm out here in Victoria; houses are incredibly expensive. The idea that you can, you know, make a living and buy yourself a home is pretty alluring nowadays. Yeah, I, I think the real estate piece of this is bigger than it was in the past, especially because you know the, the high prices in Victoria, Toronto, and, and, and a number of other markets. I mean, you can get you know, a really great deal, relatively speaking, uh, in Alberta. And oil and gas remains a major driver. It, it Even if it's not directly uh, drawing people in, it, it helps grow the Alberta economy and, and it, it, you know, cascades out from there. But I think a little bit different this time around is, you know, Alberta's got a growing tech sector. Um, so other areas of the economy also pulling people in. So you put the affordability of housing um, sort of that broader economic growth plus an oil and gas sector that's doing well. And not a big surprise that we are drawing people in and, and, and people also staying here, less likely to move out as well. Yeah, Calgary and Edmonton of 2022 are not Calgary and Edmonton of 1992, right? It's going to be, uh, it's different. I mean, what do you see, for, do you have enough space for everyone? I mean, that's the rentals are obviously a big issue these days. Is there enough room for everyone to settle in? Well, it's, it is a bit tricky. Anytime you get that inflow of people and we're also you know uh, growing a little bit from natural increase so births uh, versus deaths and and international immigration picking up again now that pandemic's not over but uh, some of its disruptive effects behind us all that does does add up to you know it's, it's a positive story in the real estate sector it's keeping prices from maybe dropping more than they would uh, keeping activity higher but on the rental side in particular, I know I can't speak so much for other parts of the province, but here in Calgary, it's very tight. Uh, rental costs are up and not a lot of choice. So it does come with those sort of pros and cons. But if you're looking for a house, uh, you know, you'll probably be able to do fairly well in terms of finding something and, and for a reasonable price. And, and just, I mean, the competition these days for workers is so intense that it, it must be a benefit to the entire economy that you're attracting more people in to fill positions. Because I'm sure Calgary, Edmonton, just like everywhere else or any any place in Alberta, you know, there's a lot of a lot of people are struggling to find people to work these days. There's a lot of vacancies and bringing people in is obviously good news. I mean, that's what those ads are all about, right? They are. I mean, and, and every jurisdiction across Canada um, businesses are reporting labor shortages, uh, partly due to the aging of, of, of Canadian society. A lot of uh, people with skills and experience are just reaching that retirement age. So getting harder and harder to find the right person in the right place. So anytime you have that inflow, which we're getting right now in Alberta, it doesn't solve it because it's, it's, it's larger than the, the number of people moving in, but it certainly helps. It provides that 
slightly bigger pool of people um, in the province for our for businesses here in Alberta to choose from. You know, it hurts a little bit for the for the areas that are losing those people. Of course, it it is that zero sum game. But you know, it's a good thing that Canadians can move around to where the opportunities are. So even though it's it doesn't help uh, places that are losing people, it's it's overall it's a benefit. I think that we're able to go where the jobs are and, and find gainful employment. I, I, I know you don't talk policy, but we have and the radio ads, all the the campaign, the billboards, the ads. They haven't really even had a chance to settle in yet you're already getting more people in so that's that's a pretty positive sign yeah so that that alberta campaign you know alberta is calling um mm-hmm. started in mid-august and the numbers we're talking about tonight um were before that so it's the second exactly. quarter april may june so it'll be mm-hmm. interesting to see and you know you'd have to talk to an advertising expert <laughs> sort of how much impact that's having but it is that underlying economic opportunity and again, people move for all sorts of reasons, but that's certainly a major draw. Um, if you can find a job for yourself or your partner or, or, the, or, or, or that affordability on the housing side, those are the big factors that are going to move people in, in large numbers. Well, we, we'll be looking to see what, uh, what the next quarter and the quarter app, what the third and fourth quarters have uh, looked like for this year. Rob Roach, thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. Always great to be on. Thanks.